0: Good morning, happy Wednesday. I have neuro coffee in hand as usual, and it is perfect. Okay, big day, big day. If you're on the mentorship list, a little FYI, I'm gonna be sending out an email today with a huge monster announcement for you, um, something we've been working on for a little while. Um, that actually includes, um, my business partner, Mike Robertson. And so you're going to be wanting to look for that because there's, there's going to be something that's very, very special for you guys that are on the mentorship list. So if you're not on that list, I would suggest you get signed up very, very quickly. Um, also it is Wednesday, which means that tomorrow's Thursday. So tomorrow's chips and salsa day. So I'm really looking forward to that. Now to the Q and a, um, Today is gonna to be all about the, the wide ISA, if that's okay with you. Cause I got a question from um, a couple people that have, that have gone through the intensive, uh, Monica and Justin, and they had a question about some, some wide ISA strategies. And so I wanted to go through a few things that I think might be helpful for you from like a self diagnosis standpoint and from a training standpoint. And so first and foremost though, let's kind of look at, at what we're up against here with, with the wide ISAs. And so I got out my uh, my little thorax thingy here and I'm gonna show you down the line. So what we're typically looking at with the wide ISA is the expansion from the medial to lateral and then so we are narrower from, from anterior to posterior. And so under these circumstances, we don't get a lot of turn. Um, we'll see a lot of compressive strategies. The initial bias with the wide is towards increased internal rotation and a loss of external rotation. But Justin and Monica had questions about what about when you lose the internal rotation? So, so let me grab the pelvis here and I'll show you like a nice little representation of the pelvis. So under most circumstances with the With the uh, wide ISAs, and if they don't have full breathing excursion, then I'm going to be looking at a situation like that where I'm going to have the mutated sacrum, I'm going to have the ir ilium, and that would normally point the acetabulum forward and into an antiverted position of the acetabulum, which gives you lots of IR. However, if I'm losing that IR, that means I've got a compressive strategy anteriorly. Um, so so the front of the pelvis is getting pushed backwards, much like the sternum getting pushed down. So the pump handle would probably be down as well. So that means I'm going to start to lose shoulder internal rotation. And I'm going to start to lose this this hip internal rotation. And so when we think about lines and we think about training strategies and such, we want to consider this shape first and foremost. So what we need to do is we need to create some strategy that creates that anterior expansion. Again, it brings the pump handle back up, moves that pubis forward, and so one of the things that we can do is just flip people onto their side. So we're going to do a lot more side-lying activities. So this would be somebody, if you think about like one of your standard gym activities that people love planks for some reason. This is somebody that would not put in a prone plank position that would be symmetrical because all it would do is reinforce this compressive strategy. But if I move you into a side plank position, because all the internal organs fall towards the ground based on gravity, we get this nice little anterior-posterior expansion under those circumstances. So if we were just to say that we're doing planks, if I was gonna do a wide, I would put them in a side plank all day, every day. Um, because, because, again, the the gravity gives us this this mechanical advantage um, of of gut position. Um, The other thing that we have to recognize is the fact that we don't have very good turns. And so, again, bilateral symmetrical exercises tend to not be advantageous when we're trying to create the anterior-posterior expansion on a wide and restore their turn. Exception to the rule may be one of my most recent posts where I was talking about recapturing hip internal rotation with a modified Camperini deadlift followed by the wide stance heels elevated deep squat. The the wide stance heels elevated deep squat can actually help restore uh, internal rotation for those wides that are showing limited straight leg raises, probably... Um, at least below 70, but probably more limited than that. And you'll see a return on investment in hip interorientation under those circumstances because what you got there is a situation where the musculature below the level of the trochanter is actually concentrically oriented and limiting the under in, in that respect. So, so again, that would be one of the exceptions to the rule for bilateral symmetrical. Typically, what you're going to want to do, though, is you're going to want to emphasize Um, Split stance orientations, single arm pressing and pulling, because when we're pushing and pulling with a single arm, we get a compressive strategy on one side and an expansive strategy on the other. And that's how we're actually going to start to restore this turning element. When we think about the two sternums, yes, you have two sternums, you have a right and a left. When I compress on one side, I'm gonna compress the, the pump handle on one side, which will allow expansion on the other side. On the back side of the thorax, I'm gonna get a reciprocal expansion compression under those circumstances as well. So again, I wanna use unilateral strategies when I'm trying to create expansion um, for my Ys um, Also posted today on Instagram, a little strategy to keep that, that posterior expansion on the back side for those of you that do perform a lot of bilateral symmetrical exercises and are probably biased towards a wide ISA. um, Very useful strategy as well. Um, Another great self-test is uh, the back to wall flexion test. That's also up on YouTube so you can actually get to see that if you are limited to such a degree that when you put your fingertips against the wall with the elbow pointing straight ahead and you can't get past 90 degrees. of of shoulder flexion without the deviation of the elbow outward, then you know that you are compressed below the level of the scapula, and you need to go to the the most recent Instagram post and get that posterior expansion um, where I show you bending over the glute ham to expand the lower posterior rib cage, because that's gonna be your first step. I would also do the heels elevated bilateral squat. under those circumstances to try to re-establish expansion in that area first. Because if you don't have expansion there, you'll never get the pump handle to come up because ultimately we've got to get the pump handle to come up to get the internal rotations to come back. So expand the, the posterior lower rib cage first, then go after pump handle. The way you go after pump handle is through the unilateral pressing and pulling activities. So, so make sure you're addressing the, the reciprocal strategy and again, when you're trying to create that AP expansion. So hopefully that gives you a little bit, you got a couple of tests, you got the back to wall shoulder flexion test, you get a straight leg raise test that are gonna help guide what your priority should be. And then you've got this unilateral reciprocal strategy in regards to your training. So apply those. If you have any questions or comments, please uh, post them below. If we're looking at this on YouTube, and uh, I'll get back to you guys later this week. Good morning. Happy Monday. I have Neurocoffee Coffee in hand. And it is perfect. Okay. So, a lot going on, believe it or not. Hard to believe, you know, with all the constraints on our behaviors of, of late. But... Uh, the mentorship programs are taking off, so the people are taking this opportunity to make themselves better, which is really, really cool to see. Um, I'm very, very pleased um, that, that, that people are not sitting back and being the passive recipients of consequences, and they are they are taking action. And so a lot of people working on themselves, which I think is a very, very powerful thing, so congratulations on that. If you're interested in mentorship, just go to BillHartmanPT.com and check that out. And... Uh, Maybe we'll get to talk, okay? So I got a bunch of questions for the week, um, but I wanted to start off with with one from Pete, actually two from Pete. Pete asked a bunch of questions, and and I hope you don't mind, Pete, but I'm gonna paraphrase this stuff a little bit just to make it a little bit more digestible. But basically, uh, Pete's first question is, how are you dissociating sacral movements uh, to pelvic orientations, and how do they show up in testing? So this is actually a really, really good question because it allows us to differentiate the difference between relative motion within the pelvis and then an absolute, absolute orientation of the pelvis. Let me, let me grab my pelvis for a sec. I'll show you what I mean. So if we're talking about normal stuff here, right? We're gonna talk about normal range of motion first so if we look at your typical average norms we get about 60 degrees of hip er and and 40 degrees of hip ir by by dead guy anatomy so so what that requires though is that i have this this normal nutation counter-nutation element of relative position change in the pelvis so when i I am mutated and I have that IR ilium, that allows me to capture my normal IR motion. When I have the counter-nutation and the ER and ilium, that allows me to capture my ER motion. Now, if I would have measures, let's just say 75 degrees of ER, 25 degrees of, of IR, that still demonstrates the relative motion within the pelvis. It just means that I'm biased towards my inhalation strategies because I've got 70, 75 degrees of ER, what that does is it just means that I've retroverted the, the acetabulum to allow that 75 to show up. If I still have 25 degrees, that means I still have some relative motion here. It's just that I'm biased way back towards my, my inhalation strategy. So keep that in mind. When I have orientations take place, what that means is, is that I'm going to start to lose my physiological motion. So if I would anteriorly orient the, the pelvis, what you're going to see over time, because of the compressive strategy that takes place on the posterior aspect of the pelvis that, that starts to drive this orientation, is I'm going to start to lose my physiological measures. So, so even if I started at 75-25, as I get pushed forward and I start to anteriorly orient, I'm going to start to lose that ER measure because the musculature above the level of the trochanter is compressing the posterior pelvis it's going to create this this orientation and i'm going to start to lose my my er measures because these muscles reorient become irs and they start to bring myself into that that hip ir position so that's a great way to distinguish between uh the orientations and the relative motions because when i have relative motion of the pelvis I still have this full physiological range. When I lose my physiological range, then you can pretty much guarantee that I've got an orientation problem going on. Okay, so Pete's second question had to do with, uh, um, I'm just gonna go to the end of it. Um, what do you commonly refer to when, when you say someone is is in exhalation versus inhalation? So, so now, Pete, we're gonna talk about the two archetypes. We're gonna talk about your wide ISAs and your narrow ISAs so that everybody just loves to talk about. Um, but in general, what we're looking at is, is different physiological structures. And so if you looked at my Instagram over the weekend, i stood outside one of the, the shops nearby, the, nearby iFest and um, had the wacky wavy tube guy out front. And I just love the wacky wavy tube guy for so many reasons, but one, because it is demonstrative of one of the strategies that we utilize against gravity. So we only have two, we can either expand or we can compress. And so what the two archetypes are representative of is that ability to expand or compress because we will be biased at the extreme so we're talking about the extremes we're not talking about anybody that's in the middle range so because of the helical angles so so the angles of of of, of if you look at the uh, abdominal muscles um, that's a great representation of the helical angles but the isa is representative of, of those helical angles so the narrow uh, isa has a more vertical helical angle and what that means is that person's physical structure cannot elongate anymore so their strategy against gravity is to ex- try to expand themselves so they will be inhalation biased based on their physical structure in the opposing strategy where i have a wide isa i can't get any wider so i try to squeeze myself and compress myself upward against gravity to maintain my position Well, if one is expanding, then that creates negative pressure. So that's a bias towards inhalation. And if the other is compressing, that's a bias towards exhalation. So that's how we know the difference between these two archetypes is one is a compressor and one is an expander. So the the compressor is an exhalation bias and the expander is the inhalation bias. The ISA represents the compensatory strategy against their axial skeletal bias that we just discussed. And so that's what allows me to determine what their strategy may be against gravity. So when we talk about inhalation or exhalation, it's based on your physical structures. So I hope that clarifies that for you, Pete. I hope everybody has a fabulous Monday. I got stuff to do, uh, including finishing up my neuro coffee, which is delicious as usual. Everybody have a great day and I'll see you later. Good morning, happy Tuesday. Um, It is a great day. I had to come in to the Purple Room for a little bit today so I thought I would just shoot the video from here. So I brought the travel edition of Neuro Coffee and it is perfect. So I've been going back and forth on email with uh, Eddie from Germany. Eddie's an osteopath in Germany. And we've been discussing how we would utilize half kneeling positions or split stance positions and how it would affect the orientation and behavior of the pelvis. So I thought I would shoot a video and sort of break down the half kneeling position a little bit more in detail than what we've been used to. And hopefully it'll answer some questions that you may have as to how you're gonna implement this in half kneeling or split stance activities to achieve the outcomes that you've been seeking. So I have my pelvis set up here on the stool in sort of a a split stance orientation or half kneeling orientation. So we can manipulate it a little bit easier and and show you some of the positions that are very common in regards to execution of certain activities in half kneeling or, or split stance, or some of the things that you're gonna see in your athletes or clients. And one of the most common things you're probably gonna see is you're gonna see people assume this half kneeling or split stance orientation with one hip higher than the other. And what I want you to recognize is that what you're typically seeing under these circumstances is that the pelvis is actually going to be oriented towards the downside leg, but it's also going to be positioned in a position of inhalation. So you're going to get extra rotation of both ilia and you're going to get counter-nutation uh, of the sacrum. Now, what this does is it creates a descension of the pelvic diaphragm. So, so this is a very low pressure situation inside the pelvic diaphragm, which pushes some of the effort towards the extremity musculature which is one of the reasons why you'll see people complain of quad tightness in a in a split stance or half kneeling position or they'll complain about about tightness in the front of the hip or they'll complain about anterior knee pain because they're placing more demand on the extremity musculature this increases pressure and tension at the joints and so that might be what they're actually sensing if we want to create a more stable structure through the pelvis, we have to create a concentrically oriented pelvic diaphragm. So we need an overcoming contraction and concentric orientation of that pelvic diaphragm. And the way we do that is by leveling the pelvis actively. So for those people that are presenting with that one hip higher than the other, so they're, they're in external rotation, what we need to do is actually push the front side hip downward. In doing so, we actually create an internal rotation of that, of that front side hip which moves the ilium into internal rotation, which immediately mutates the sacrum and starts to bring the pelvic diaphragm upward towards concentric orientation. As I push this side down, I pick up activity on the inside of the downside thigh, which actually opens the outlet on this side, which also promotes a concentric pelvic diaphragm. So now I have a much more stable structure that I can perform my half kneeling exercises in or my split stance activities. And this should happen as I move actively through a split stance or as I assume a stable position in half kneeling. Once again, for those people that cannot create this concentric orientation or this propulsive phase in half kneeling or in split stance, they will typically complain about tightness or pressure or pain. Now, if I take us to more of a side view, you can see that I probably have this potential orientation issue to deal with as well. If I have an anteriorly oriented pelvis, I have lost the relative motion and therefore I have no relative position change capabilities. To overcome the anterior orientation, I have to use the proximal hip musculature to capture the position of the ischial tuberosity relative to the femur. If I can capture this position, then I can restore the relative position change that's necessary for me to capture the concentric pelvic diaphragm. This is going to allow me to be stable and comfortable in half kneeling, or allow me to propel through my split squat. So let's take a look at these positions in half kneeling. So as I am resting here on my left knee, I can actually feel that my right hip is is now higher. So that's going to be that inhaled position. So both sides of my pelvis are actually in an inhaled position, and both hips are in ER. So for me to capture an IR position of the hip in a concentrically oriented pelvic diaphragm, what I want to do is I want to cue a downward position with this hip. So I'm not sagging into the hip. I'm physically pushing it down. So think about pulling up with abdominals on the left side and pushing the right hip down. Now what I've done is I've oriented the acetabulum so they're now both facing forward into an antiverted position, which captures internal rotation on both hips. Now, here's the kicker. I have to make sure that I'm maintaining the position of the ischial tuberosity relative to the femur first. If I don't do that, I don't get this relative position change and I can't capture the IRs. I'll stay in ER and those are the people that are gonna complain about tightness in the front of the hip, tightness in the quad, or knee pain on either knee. This is one of the reasons why this half kneeling position is so important, is because it's going to transfer to all of my split stance activities. If I cannot capture the maximum propulsive position in half kneeling, the chances of me capturing in a split stance are minimal. Keep in mind, there are some clients that are not qualified to be in half kneeling nor are they qualified for split stance activities. Your goal under those circumstances are to recapture the intentional anterior and posterior orientation of the pelvis. This assures that I can maintain position of the ischial tuberosity relative to the femur, which gives me the capacity to restore relative positions within the pelvis. Good morning. Happy Monday. I have neurocoffee coffee in hand as usual and It is perfect, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, huge Monster Monday. So, if you're on the mentorship list, you're going to get an email, and chances are you've already gotten it if you're watching this. That Mike Roberts and I are doing a Q&A at 3 p.m. for uh, the people that are on the IFastU list. So, you're going to get notified for that. Um, very exciting. This is this is at no charge to you for today. And then uh, it's going to be 100 people max. So it's going to be first come, first serve. So hopefully we'll see you there for that. 3 p.m. Eastern Time, me and my buddy Mike Robertson. Okay. So we got a bunch of Q&A backups to get through. So we're going to knock a couple out this morning, if it's okay by you. First one comes from Austin. Austin says, I have a question. About a video you posted a couple months ago on improving hip internal rotation with the toe touch video. You mentioned that using dorsiflexion to achieve sacral nutation uh, and maintain mid to max propulsion. You also mentioned plantar flexion. Putting the individual in an early propulsive phase, can you talk me through how dorsiflexion and plantar flexion influences sacral position? Absolutely. So I'm going to bring in a special guest. This is my classic Air Jordan that I got from uh, my good good buddy Jim Ferris. Um, Got him in the shield colors as everybody should anyway. So we're going to use this as a representation of the foot as it moves through uh, the gait cycle. And so when we look at the the foot in in its Approach position, it's going to land in a supinated position heel first. So, first heel contact is going to be lateral. So, I've got a supinated foot position, which is actually external rotation. So, external rotation is inhalation expansion, which puts the sacrum in a counter-nutated position just prior to g- ground contact. As I make contact, I have to start propelling, otherwise, I'd collapse into the ground. But this is early propulsion. So, now as the foot comes to flat, the body is still behind the foot. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to be a leg for a sec okay so as I land I hit the heel I go into plantar flexion but the body is still back and behind so this is counter mutation this is inhalation this is ER as I move towards pronation okay so I'm bringing the medial heel into contact with the ground so I can pronate that's where I'm going to start to reach my mid and max propulsive strategies okay so as I hit the ground and I come over top of the foot and then as the body comes over the foot, I have to create a, a stable pelvic orientation above the foot. So now let's grab the pelvis And now we can actually see, so as I land on here, as I'm stepping over, I bring the hip towards zero degrees of of what we would call hip extension, but this is where I'm gonna get a concentric orientation of the pelvic diaphragm, and so that's gonna create the nutated position of the sacrum. So now I have pronation down below, I've got intra-rotation of the hip, I've got a concentric pelvic diaphragm, and I got a nutated sacrum. So that's how we can relate the plantar flexion and, and dorsiflexion to the sacral position. So when I'm plantar flex, which is actually supination ER, inhalation, I'm gonna be counter mutated As I'm pronated, I'm gonna be IR'd, pelvic diaphragm, mutation of the sacrum. So hopefully that will answer your question, Austin. And if it doesn't, please ask me another one. Okay, question number two from Matt. And Matt asks, I know you have to work on knee valgus in athletes, and to what degree is it not something to worry about because it potentially helps produce power. I was wondering where you could find more info to read about it. I'm not sure that you're gonna read a whole lot about um, the, using the a valgus, if you will, um, to, a, as far as like when it's beneficial, how much to use and, and, and how you're gonna make that, that judgment as to whether you're being effective with it. But let's just talk through what knee valgus really is because it doesn't really exist. There is no frontal plane. Um, Front plane is a visual representation for you and I to have a discussion. What the reality is, is what we're looking at, I'm going to bring this up close. What we're looking at with a knee valgus is actually a rotation in the knee, right? So so what we have is we have a femur and a a tibia that are in in relative rotation. So this would be defined by the tibia under most circumstances would be tibiofemoral external rotation. And so what we have is an internally rotated femur on top. Of the tibia, and what that does is that produces what people will typically identify as as that it has the appearance of a frontal plane position of, of knee valgus. Now, under certain circumstances, that's going to be very very useful. So you are absolutely correct that when we are producing power, when we are at our maximum propulsion, we're probably going to be a, approximating that position to some degree because it is. Uh, an element of propulsion. However, there's people that walk around like that because of their physical structures and because of their idiosyncratic physics and the way that they deal with gravity, they actually live in that position. And so what happens is that they'll eventually give up the, the opposing rotation. So we have tibiofemoral ER, we have tibiofemoral tibial IR. And what we want to make sure is that our athletes have access to both of those, because that would represent our ability to, to move through a full excursion of knee range of motion. So as you would uh, perform, say, the traditional knee extension activity, you'll get tibiofemoral ER as you perform the traditional knee flexion, you would get tibiofemoral IR. And so to have full knee excursion, we have to have those rotations available to us. And so, uh, Matt, what I would say is, is, is you, you wanna make sure that you can identify whether your athlete has given up one of those, those elements of, of tibiofemoral rotation. That would be something that I would say that would put you at risk because it does compromise the full excursion of knee range of motion. Um, that would be my first first priority. Secondly, is once again is as they move through their maximum propulsive phase, are they capturing this knee position? And then can they reverse it as they push out of it? So, at, at early and late propulsive phases, I want to recapture the, the tibiofemoral position uh, of ER. And as I move through that, that max propulsive phase, I want to make sure I got tibiofemoral IR um, available to me. So, once again, um, hopefully that's helpful. Um, If it's not, then again, please ask another question. You guys have a terrific Monday and uh, we will talk later this week. See ya.